I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Happy anniversary, Kiki! Happy anniversary, Tuesday! What's the two-year anniversary thing? Is there a thing uh, for two-year anniversaries? I, I, I don't know. A, a bit of paper. Yes. <laughs> Who knows? Two years ago, I sent a DM to Kiki saying, Hey, I have an idea for a Disney podcast. You think you want to be on it? And you said, sure, let's do that. Two years later, we're still doing it. Have, yeah, you, who'd have you, thunk? We've wanted to say this for special occasions. So our special anniversary episode is a retrospective on The Simpsons. This show, which has been going on for over 30 years. I don't need to tell you all about The Simpsons. Everybody knows what The Simpsons is. You yeah, know. I mean, this has been on for most of our lives. When this show started in 91, we were the same age as Bart Simpson, 10 years old. Now we're older than Homer Simpson. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just, I mean, the, the, the shorts... On uh, on the old Tracy Ullman show, and then in December of of eighty nine, we get the actual first full length Simpsons. Yeah, the first full length Simpsons was a Christmas episode. Simpsons roasting on an open fire. Thirty plus years later, the show is still on the air, still going. There is no way anyone could have seen that coming. <laughs> yeah. If you had gone back in time and told someone that the Simpsons are going to be on for 30 years, no one would believe you. People didn't think the show would go past that first season. There, I mean, if for a while it was a joke where during that, that, that middle, that te- season 15 to 25 decade, people were going, the Simpsons is still on the air? And occasionally you'll, you'll get that. Like, the Simpsons are still on? They're still doing that? You know, I think it's one of those things now that even if The Simpsons went off the air, people would go like, no, The Simpsons is still on the air. Because now it's just, it's just a thing. Yeah. It's so bizarre how much The Simpsons has changed. We've we've talked about how, you know, all the jokes about my weird childhood. But my childhood was so bizarre that I was allowed to watch the Tracy Ullman show. So I I saw The Simpsons as a short. But when The Simpsons came on as as its own cartoon, there was a lot of backlash um, from the religious community that I grew up in. That you know, it was it was a cartoon, but it was for adults. But the the kids, especially Bart, was a bad influence. And 
Ned Flanders made fun of of religious people and you know uh so you know they they said swear words sometimes so i wasn't allowed to watch the show proper once it became a thing and so i missed those first couple of seasons uh in the original run so i only saw them in reruns years later once i was finally allowed to watch the the show so it was it was kind of funny you know <laughs> how it how it entered my life a little bit later and of course now you have books about you know ned flanders you know how the how the simpsons actually portrays positive religious morals and you know what the Simpsons can teach you about being a good parent and, you know, Bart and Lisa, are they actually good role models for your children? <laughs> you know, like It just flipped their flip turn upside down, as it were. Yeah, it's just it's been on so long. It, it's very bizarre how Simpsons has gone from so counterculture to the epitome of the culture. Yeah. What What about you? Were you kind of there? from day I, one or i i occasionally watched a little i didn't watch a lot of the tracy ullman show i knew that it existed and but my first exposure to the simpsons was that first christmas episode and I, it was a weird cartoon for me like here are these cartoons but these adult languages and you know a 10 year old kid me hearing you know a, a kid my age on tv saying damn and hell and Acting like, for lack of a better term, acting like real people. Because the, the sitcoms at the time and, you know, for a while was just, for lack of a better term, perfect people. And you would get the occasional special episode where something bad happens. But I hate using the term full house, but that's kind of what it was. And then through The Simpsons, you know, you know yeah, you had married with children, but still you had this, but... The Simpsons was, you know, the adult cartoon, and cartoons should only be for kids, but I still watched it. My parents let me watch The Simpsons. You know, The Simpsons really started as that deconstruction of the sitcom, and now it's the staple of the sitcom. You know, you've got uh, Family Guy and American Dad and, you know, King of the Hill, Bob's Burgers that came from it, and... Shows like Malcolm in the Middle and and the the Goldbergs and Everyone Hates Chris that kind of took the inspiration from The Simpsons. It's kind of weird. Like you said, it, it started as counterculture, and now it's like the measuring stick of yeah. all other sitcoms. It it is just so foundational to our generation and how we see the world so we figured that we would just take this you know anniversary special and talk about episodes that were really important not only to us but to some of the guests that we have uh, enjoyed talking to over the last two years 
Yeah, everybody has at least one favorite episode of The Simpsons. I don't care who you are. Everyone has one episode of The Simpsons that is their absolute favorite. So we asked some of our past guests what their favorite Simpsons episode was and to come onto the show and we'll discuss about it. And we're going to be talking about Simpsons episodes from all over the series from the first season to the most recent season, amazingly enough. Yeah, let's go to our first episode of discussion and uh, we'll be back. You know, you play pretty well for someone with no real problems. Yeah, but I don't feel any better. The blues isn't about feeling better. It's about making other people feel worse and making a few bucks while you're at it. And here we are with our first guest of the podcast. It's our friend Adam. Hi, everybody. Hi, Adam. <laughs> hey, Adam. Oh, so good to have you back. I love coming on this show. Uh, you guys are great, and uh, I really enjoy it. Yeah, so the episode that you wanted to discuss was Season 1, Episode 6, Moaning Lisa. Uh, why this episode? Uh, it is an, episode, an epic tale of depression, uh, saxophone, and uh, video boxing. Ah. It's, uh, I believe it's the very first uh, quote-unquote Lisa episode as well, which uh, I actually enjoy those. A lot of people complain about them, but they always seem to have a little bit more emotional weight than uh, your standard Simpsons episode. Mm. I think this is also the first one that we, it really focuses on um, musical, the musical aspect of the Simpsons as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of the earliest ones that really focuses on Lisa's love of music and how music is kind of integral to the Simpsons experience. Um, it also really starts to get the uh, the family dynamic uh, of the Simpsons uh, into place. Uh, you know, Homer and Bart's relationship, Homer and Lisa's relationship, Marge's relationship with the kids. It's uh, it's 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 kind of really foundational for the rest of the Simpsons. And a little bit about how Marge grew up as well and how that impacts her parenting style. Yes, exactly. Because we we do see in her her dream sequence that we see how how Marge's mother raised her. Always uh, smile, no matter what happens, always smile. Yeah. That's a very uh that's a very nineteen fifties way to raise a child. Watching that, like that hit me because that was that was my family. Doesn't matter what happens at home or inside or you know in your brain or whatever. It's the perception, <laughs> you know. Perception is reality. Yeah, the what 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 other people think is the you know what what you show to the world is the important thing. Um. And boy, boy, when watching that again and remembering that that was part of the episode, that that one, you know, that was like a bright punch right there. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little rough, and there there's a great Marge moment near the end of the episode too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you want to talk about that? It's it's kind of a free for all. Just yeah, go for just- it. The, the moment when uh, when she tells Lisa to smile, that, that kind of broke my heart a bit. I'd forgotten about that. And then uh, Lisa's going through, and uh, apparently all the boys like her because she's smiling now. And the uh, but the, the thing that got me was the, the band teacher, I hope we don't have another uh, burst of creativity, 
which uh, I've experienced that in my life uh, from teachers before. Oh yeah, which seems like exactly the opposite. Of, seems like exactly the opposite of what a teacher should be doing is, uh, is discouraging creativity in their students, no matter what the subject, but especially something like some an art like music. Yeah, well, I mean, do you want to do you want to talk about that that scene that that connects to? Because that's the moment we see her in band class really trying to do jazz. Yes, and uh, she's and you know she's pretty good at it. Lord knows where she got that from, since uh, apparently her band teacher uh, discourages any such uh, displays. But that that is such a good moment when she she's playing that riff and. They're playing, what is it, America the Beautiful, I think? My, My Country Tis Thee. Yeah. My Country Tis Thee, that's right. And she's she's playing and she says that she's playing for... For the homeless man who doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. For the the the, uh, the, the coal miner who's uh, who's coughing up and that's where he, she gets interrupted. Yeah, the, the the farmer that's lost the land or something like that. And, you know, and it's it's good because it is the other side of America. And she's playing America's music. Yeah, she's playing America's music and she is playing the other side of America. And, you know, this aired in 1990. You know, we're just coming out of, you know, Reagan's America and all that kind of stuff. And it is, you know, it was a bit of a different time then we're living in now, you know. Yet still um, somehow timely. Like Well, I mean it it you know. it's kind of always timely, but it wasn't talked about as much on TV at the time. Yeah. It's what made Simpsons so groundbreaking when it started. What really kind of got me at this episode is how seriously they treated Lisa's uh activism for want of a better word because usually that it seems like it's the butt of the joke in later episodes. Oh, here's Lisa, you know, uh, doing it for the attention rather than doing it because she actually believes in these causes. Yeah. Becoming more of a, um, uh, I hate that term, uh, SJW. I so hate the, the way it's, it's used, but that's kind of how a lot of people see Lisa, that she says all of these things, but she doesn't actually believe in any of them. Yeah, Lisa, the virtue signaler, you know, it's it's... It's become the the joke when it shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. The thing about this episode is I love how seriously they treat her depression as well. The yes. family in it initially treats it as a joke, like Homer, especially because, you know, you're sad. I don't see any tears. Well, I, I think that's part of the lesson that Homer's learning is that depression isn't just conventional sadness it's 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 an issue and i i I think that that lisa's depression actually shows up a lot further on in the series too and it's it's kind of a it's it's depicted pretty realistically with her yeah i wasn't allowed to watch the simpsons at the time this episode aired so i wasn't i wasn't watching the show when this initially aired but by the time i saw this episode for the first time um, just like three or four years later, I had depression and I was roughly, uh, a, just a few years older than Lisa. So here was a kid roughly my age going through the thing that I had. 
And so the, this was a really impactful episode for me. It, it was kind of interesting, yeah. And all of this is coming from the fact that everyone she knows, every authority figure is telling her that she's wrong. Like, she tries to express herself and she's told, don't do it. She, in any capacity, trying to be herself and she's told, no, don't, don't be yourself, be someone else. You know, the music teacher, the the PE teacher, the, the letter is signed by Principal Skinner, her parents, her brother. And it's not until the end where, where Marge just says, be yourself no matter what. If you want to be sad, be sad. If you want to be happy, be happy. Just be you. And it's like, that's what Lisa needed. And Lisa, she, Lisa needed to be heard and understood. The first person to ever do that is Bleeding Gums Murphy. That actually listens to her problems and he does say, hey, you, you really don't have a lot of problems for someone who says that you're depressed, but I understand where you're coming from. You know, I, love, who, uh, I love Bleeding Gums' line, uh, the blues isn't about, isn't about making you feel better, it's about making other people feel worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is just fantastic. <laughs> I love that scene where Homer comes into the bedroom and is... She's in there playing the the blues, and he's like, you know what? If playing the blues is going to make you happy, you you go ahead and play the blues. You know, it's like... Um, Homer's trying. It's that moment where where Homer realizes he's out of his depth, but you can tell he loves her and he wants to be supportive. That bit where she says, well, can I just sit here and, and practice the, the fingering on, on my keys? It won't be too loud. And he's like, you know what? You just clack those keys as loud as you want. Uh, it's also a, a rare moment of Homer's self-awareness when uh, he realizes that he's may upset his daughter by yelling at her. And then he, he, he feels awful about it. He genuinely feels awful about it, which I, I, I kind of love that he realized that. I also love Bart's attempt to cheer Lisa up because it shows that Bart actually does care about Lisa, too. He, but he hates to admit. He says, I know what I, you know how I feel. I know how I feel. Why do I have to say it? Yeah. But, but I, I thought, I think him doing a prank call to Moe's for her is actually really sweet. Yeah. It's his way of trying to cheer her up and doesn't go as well. But again, the, the meaning is it, it does show that, that Bart does love his sister. So and, a couple things really stand out to me about this episode. And it's stuff that's stuck with me since the first time I saw it. For example, uh, Lisa's song with uh, with Bleeding Gums. The Moan and Lisa Blues. Yeah, the Moan and Lisa Blues. That has stuck with me. The fact that, uh, uh, why do they call you Bleeding Gums? Let me put it this way. Have you ever seen a dentist? Not me. Yeah. Can we talk about some of the production aspects of this episode? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, like, some of the sound design is painful. Yeah, I mean, this is still the cartoony era of the Simpsons, as I call it, where uh, not only is the animation style a little more exaggerated, but the sound effects are very much exaggerated. The way the sound effect of characters walking is very like boot stomping, no matter what shoes or they are or aren't wearing. Well, like there's the, the, in the, in the opening scene when Homer's looking for his keys and Bart walks across the kitchen floor, it's just nothing but shoe squeaks which I don't recall ever hearing on the Simpsons, but for some reason it like, and and it's, and it's long. It's like, it's like three, three seconds or something of, of just Bart squeaking across the floor, hmm. 
which I don't think they would ever show in a, in a modern day episode of the Simpsons. They would never hold on him walking across the floor that long. Yeah. Again, they're, they're still trying to figure out the show at this point. And then, but... and then in, in Lisa's, in Lisa's scene in the, uh, the, in the, the cafeteria, like the, the chewing noises almost overpower her dialogue. It does get better later seasons. I mean, watch a modern Simpsons episode compared to these, these uh, original ones and, Night yeah, and they, day. They definitely sound for more realistic sound design. Yeah, and more realistic movement in the animation. No longer the exaggerated expressions and stuff that we. Uh, first thing I noticed was when Homer knocking on the do- on the bathroom door. How the it looked like he was about to tear that 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 door down, which is probably the intention. But the animation on the door would never be that exaggerated on a modern Simpsons episode. Yeah. Um. There was a part where, like, like the the long shot of bleeding gums standing on the bridge, where he was like one and a half traffic lanes wide. <laughs> yeah, it it is an interesting episode. You know, it is so early in the series; it's only the sixth episode in, and it has the first guest star to ever appear in The Simpsons. That's right, uh, Ron because Taylor. Because Ron Taylor gum. is the first. Yeah, so Bleeding Gums is our is our first guest voice. Uh, I I, I kind of want to talk about the musical aspects of the show because that's right. my my area. Yeah, of it. no, go go ahead. Go, go ahead. So I wanted to talk about um, how I I love the decision that um, Lisa plays baritone saxophone because <laughs> you know she's a tiny little girl and she plays an instrument almost as big as she is. <laughs> and Barry Sax is uh, is is. One of the more difficult saxophones to to really get, to really play well, and she and the I know uh, Terry Harrington plays the saxophone parts for Lisa and has for uh, for a long time, and he is uh, one of the best studio sax players in L.A. And have you uh, have you ever had the chance to work with him? I, I've never had a chance to play with him. No, I've uh, I've certainly seen him with uh, with some big bands in the area, and I've 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 heard him play, but I, I've never worked with him. I'm not quite at that level. I have worked with some uh, some some pretty great people, but uh, I have not had a chance to work with Terry. But I, I love also that he's been the sax quote unquote voice for Lisa Simpson from the beginning. I love the the use of the the blues kind of riff in this, mm-hmm. and I love the simplistic lyrics. That they give Lisa's song, but they're so effective that you remember them even all these years later. Oh well, yeah, and and Yardley Smith really, really sells the performance. And they actually put this on an album. It Lisa, they did a full version of this for the Simpsons Sing the Blues album. I got a bratty brother. He bugs me every day. And this morning, my But I, I, I think my favorite part is this morning my own mother gave my last cupcake away. <laughs> I just, I love that line. Yeah. 
When in when in reality, Lisa gave the cupcake up without a fight. Well, yeah, but it's because Marge hadn't thought ahead enough, you know. Yeah. So I mean, it it's a, a little bit of both. No joy. Yeah, a cupcake would bring me no joy. Which Lisa, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I I like it because uh, one of the only one of the only claims to fame my you know pathetic little town has is that it has a rather famous blues song written about it um so yeah um and the lyrics are kind of rather non-profound but they do stick in your head you know so it's it's one of those things of i i think all blues songs are kind of like that they're very shallow seeming on the surface but they do stick with you because they're they're all kind of relatable yeah um, it's, it's the universal experience it's the yeah. universal experience that's why that's why jazz and blues are, are are sort of the quintessential american art form yeah jazz blues and then later hip-hop yeah i do want to say i love the um the chalkboard gag for this one uh, bart, bart the comrade yeah, Bart the Comrade, uh, I will not instigate a revolution, which, you know, maybe Bart get on get on board that train. I don't know. <laughs> it depends on which way you're going though. It depends yeah. on who you're who you're doing that for. So I, I think Bart would be more of an anarchist revolution than anything else. Yeah, I mean but again, there's you know there's various flavors. The other thing that struck me was was how long the title sequence is in this in these first season episodes. Yeah, you, you never you never saw when it was in syndication because they cut all the extraneous stuff for syndication. But like like the, there's a part where Bart, Bart steals a bus sign and then Lisa's riding her her bike home in a weird like straight on shot and it's like there's a lot of stuff in the opening sequence that you don't see uh, either later on or when you see the stuff in syndication. Yeah, and then the, the couch gig of this uh, in this episode's kind of forgettable. It's just Maggie popping into the air and Marge catching her. This couch gag is actually used in the Simpsons arcade game. Yes, yes, I I, I do recall that. <laughs> I've played that game many many times. I always played as Marge because I liked playing with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> yeah. This uh, couch gag I think got reused a bunch. I think it became like the default syndication couch gag too. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, whenever they, they they just plop a generic opening onto a show just to, to save some time. And it and it's because it's so short. It's one of the shorter couch gags. So. Yeah. The, the the last thing I had to, on my mind for this episode was how uh, how different storytelling on The Simpsons is now. They they they've they've gotten a lot tighter with their storytelling. You know this this episode has a whole sequence where Homer's looking for his keys that has nothing to do with the episode. Mm-hmm. But and it, and it's and it's and it doesn't inform any character moments or it's just look Homer's dumb. And if that was done in a modern Simpsons episode, that would lead to whatever the plot is. Yeah, exactly. Like the the that whole sequence uh, up to the cupcake is just. It has nothing to do with the episode, and and it's interesting, like how slow this episode moves. Yeah, um, but it also shows kind of how Lisa is the one in the family that's most tuned into what's going on around her. 
because nobody else in the family can figure out what in the world Homer would do. And at first, Lisa is not checked into what everybody else is doing. She's just kind of wandering through the scene because depression, you know? Yeah. And Marge is like, well, have you checked here? Have you checked there? And Bart's like, rumpus room. And he's like, we don't even have a rumpus room, you know? But the second Lisa checks in to like, what are you doing? We're looking for Homer's keys. And then she immediately goes to the front door and dad keys, you know, Mm -hmm. because Lisa's the only one that actually knows like what's going on in the world, which is why Lisa is the one that is depressed. Because nobody else, nobody else knows what's going on. Yeah. It's like, if you're the one person that's actually checked into what's going on around you, surprise, you're going to be the one with depression. That's like, (laughs) no offense, but if you're not the one with depression, you're the one ignorant to something going on around you. (laughs) And I distinctly recall, by the way, that, this episode was one of the ones cited by people saying the Simpsons were a bad influence on people because Homer says, where the hell are my keys? Oh yeah. It's, it's a cartoon, a cartoon character saying, hell, we can't have that. Yeah. Children might be watching this. Yeah. It's absolutely. Um, so I, I, all in all this, this episode, um, was definitely a big influence on me when I first saw it. Cause you know, seeing it as a little kid with depression, you don't really see a lot of little kids with depression. I mean, it's more now cause you know, children's television has gotten more into portraying kids as something other than the constantly happy bouncy, whatever. Mm-hmm. But this was one of the first ones that was like, oh, we're willing to show a child that has issues, you know? And and as a child with depression, that was kind of important to me. Yeah, I mean, me too. So, you know, thank you for letting us talk about this episode. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I really, like I said, I, I, it was an inter- it's been a long time since I've seen a first season Simpsons episode. And uh even among the, the the rough production stuff and the, the 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 weird Homer voice and all the rest of the stuff, there's there's actually a pretty good episode in 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 here. Yeah, like a good, I'd say like eighty to ninety percent of this episode holds up perfectly, and the stuff that doesn't is really just kind of ironing out what The Simpsons was in the early days. So you well, can't yeah, really it's, fault it's them any, too bad. It's something any young production goes through. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Adam, for joining us and choosing of course, this. I always e- have a great time choosing this episode for us to 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 discuss. Do you have anything to plug? Uh, just my normal stuff. Uh, follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Big Bass Bone because I play bass trombone. Like Lisa, I play an overly large instrument that uh, plays low notes. Um, and uh, you can also follow me on TikTok at that, and then uh, look for my band, uh, the Poxy Boggards. Uh, we're a Renaissance folk band that sings very dirty songs, uh, and that is at poxyboggards dot com. P o x y b o g g a r d s, or you can find us on Facebook at the Poxy Boggards, and you know all the all the all the socials. 
And uh, that's it. You know, uh, other than that, I got not a whole lot going on. All right. Thanks, uh, Adam. And uh, we'll be right back with our next guest and our next Simpsons episode. Someday you'll thank me for this, son. Not bloody likely. No, it's true. You know, when I was a boy, I really wanted a catcher's mitt, but my dad wouldn't get it for me. So I held my breath until I passed out and banged my head on the coffee table. The doctor thought I might have brain damage. Dad, what's the point of this story? I like stories. And we are here with our next guest, Kyle Carroza. Hi, everybody. Hey, Kyle. All right. Our friend Kyle, creator of Mighty Magiswords. Hey, that's my freaking job. <laughs> and... And recently, uh, you did a few episodes for the new season of Animaniacs that just premiered. Yes, indeed, I did. I uh, was the sto- was a storyboard artist for, uh, it's actually in the same half hour, but uh, the Hamburg Tickler and Run, Picky, Run Pinky Run, I uh, was one of the board, one of the several board artists on, uh, because kids love Run Lola Run references. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I sure do. <laughs> Kyle. For the Simpsons episode that you wanted to discuss today, Mm -hmm. you've chosen Season 4, Episode 6, Itchy and Scratchy the Movie. Why this particular episode? Okay, so, you know, my fascination with it as a kid, but also, frankly, as an adult, like, you know, was that it's a love letter to to classical animation, you know, uh, going all in on the history of Itchy and Scratchy as a thing. Uh... But then, uh, you know, upon rewatching it a year or two ago, I realized just how much I quote this specific episode. Like, you know, everyone quotes The Simpsons, but I didn't realize that 90% of my Simpsons quotes are this one episode. It is a very quotable episode. And I think one of my favorite Simpsons quotes is actually from this episode, and I didn't realize it when Homer tells the really long story about how he got the... <laughs> the head injury and part says what was the point of that story and he goes i like I stories, stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that's one of them just like i i there's like just a this isn't even all of them but there's like now who's being naive and uh <laughs> sounds like something you'd say there's a dog driving a bus oh no beta don't <laughs> you point that thing at me not bloody likely <laughs> and uh you can see the bind i'm in just a lot of things that i say a lot that like I think I didn't even realize, like, some of them I didn't even remember were quotes. Because, <laughs> I mean, this happens to me uh, with The Critic a lot, too, where it's like, I'll, I'll I just, there are these things that are in my, that are in my lexicon, and then I rewatched The Critic, and I'm like, oh, well, a lot of these are from here. <laughs> also, I mean, again, you're in the animation industry, Uh some of the animation industry jokes, like the an- the movie being animated in Korea and stuff like that. The fact that they, you know, had Koreans animating that scene of Korean animators, animators being tortured, um, that's special. Yeah. I do like the, the thing of, of the joke of, for the best in American animation, <laughs> we go now to Korea. Yeah. I know that... Uh, there, there are a lot of, or at least over the years, uh, listening to Doc and Jackson talk about 
Venture Brothers being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Korean animation side of it. Because that's how they would do, too. You know, it's like, well, you know, there's right. a couple of guys in in America who would draw a couple of reference drawings. And then we ship them all the way over to Korea. And then we just get these boxes and boxes and boxes of, you know, animation reference art back. Yeah. And, you know, in the case of, frankly, both The Simpsons and Venture Brothers, it's kind of a testament to the amount of material that they sent overseas, how much the style, you know, looks the way it is supposed to. It really is kind of interesting, but you're right with how much they do about the history of Itchy and Scratchy, because they talk about Itchy and Scratchy starting in 1928 with Steamboat Itchy. Yeah, a straight up Disney reference. Right. Yeah. Uh, and but it's also like just very typical of the the thing that they presented about like ha- like Scratchy, you know, being a failed solo star first before teaming him up with Itchy. That's that's kind of the case with a lot of cartoon duos. That was Pete before he got paired up with Mickey. Yeah, back when he was in he, Pete's actually older than Mickey since he was in the Alice comedies and yeah. I think some of the Oswald stuff. I think my favorite part of the Steamboat Itchy cartoon that they show is the black ink blood <laughs> yeah that is there you know when when he's be, being dragged across the deck you know <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of wild uh that that uh, the simpsons on disney plus gets to keep his t- keep its tv pg rating when you know, all of the itchy and scratchy material is not just violent, but bloody. <laughs> yeah, but that that one especially uh, is just funny to me how they do it, because there are some now that you look back on those, you know, what was the original air date for this? This was 92. Yeah. So some of those, you look at this episode particularly, and the jokes they're doing in 92, and I'm looking at it and I go, I'm not sure if some of these jokes make it past a censor now. I mean, it kind of depends on the circumstance. Uh, but, but yeah, like, but around those, I like one of my favorite things I have ever seen in The Simpsons is the, the 40s wartime one where Itchy and Scratchy are beating up on Hitler. Um, it That just killed me back then. And it kills me even more now because, like, not only is it just, like, a really good, you know, uh, style pastiche, um, including the way it moves. Like, I, I I looked it up at one point and found out, like, because that was animated in-house, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and I had the name of the person who did it at some point, but I don't know who it was now. But, like, then on top of that, they just kind of, like, aged the way it looks so um, just kind of perfectly. Like, it looked like something I might have got, might have had on, like, a 99-cent VHS where the colors were kind of, like, muddy and you can't necessarily see all the details on Scratchy's face. Uh, it was just, it was just really well done. As somebody who watches a lot of wartime cartoons, it was really well done. I had thought the same thing, because I'm also really into those 
wartime propaganda cartoons. <laughs> and They're amazing cartoons. So many of them. And uh, when I was watching it back, I was like, wow, they really nailed this style. And then at the end where it was like had the little buy war bonds and or, or no, yeah. you know, the, the scrap iron. Scrap iron, yeah, at the end. And I was like, wow, that really is the that that moment in time kind of preserved. Um, and there, there's something just a little unsettling in a in a very good way. The uh, after you know itchy beheads Scratchy and Hitler, just like the somewhat realistic ink ink stain on his axe as cartoony stuff, like classic forties cartoony stuff, is going on. The really cool thing to me about that is watching this and then remembering in the kind of Simpsons did it way of how this was scaled up for the South Park movie. Mm -hmm. In the sense of the kids all want to go see the Terrence and Philip movie. Yeah. I kept thinking of that so much while watching this episode. Oh, yeah, that that it is. The setup is very similar, isn't it? it, it like in the setup. The but priorities. It, it, like yeah. the, the story priorities being about like not just one kid, but all of the kids, thus making the, you know, movie about censorship rather than, you know, disciplining one child. But yeah, it's kind of interesting in that way how you can look at like there are there can be like similar stories between a TV episode and a movie, just like escalating things depending on like what the movie's priorities are. Yeah, and and Lisa talking about Lisa standing up for Bart in the punishment. I agree that Bart needs some discipline here, Dad, but this is the cultural moment of my entire generation, and you need to calm down. <laughs> a modern equivalent would be like a kid gets punished and he can't go see Avengers Endgame. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, one of the things I liked about this episode, and that was a good example, but like I I used to have conversations with, with people back when back when these episodes were airing about like some some people finding it odd that like Lisa was this, you know, super smart kid, but always laughed at the itchy, scratchy cartoons just as much as Bart did. And, like, that is one of the things I like about this episode is that, like, and it's something that I feel like they sometimes forget in more modern stuff. They remember that Lisa is a kid, like an actual kid. And so, you know, she is going to laugh her butt off at itchy, itchy and scratchy episodes because, you know, no matter how smart of a kid you are, you're, you're probably laughing at that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's the thing, you know, it's like, here I am at age 40. I have a master's degree. Mm -hmm. Anyone who knows me, I think, knows the sorts of things I'm into. I mean, moments before we recorded this podcast, I was having a very intellectual deep dive conversation with someone about... Shakespeare in the original pronunciation and the accent of England, you know, 400, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. But if you send me a video of a dude getting hit in the nards, <laughs> I am gone. <laughs> Football to the groin. That's a different episode. Yeah, I mean, that that to me will always be the ultimate Simpsons joke. I'm not kidding. If you ask me what is the ultimate Simpsons joke, man getting hit with football 
ultimate Simpsons joke. Yeah, to, to also explain the Simpsons by reaching for a Simpsons reference, uh, <laughs> I, I'm reminded of Dr. Marvin Runrow talking about how we liked to, you know, uh, get some buttered popcorn, popcorn laid back and watch Itchy and Scratchy and laugh himself silly. Yeah, but that... I don't understand how people don't get why Lisa would find this hilarious. Because... I think people are just used to character archetypes having one trait and leaving it at that. The flanderization of Lisa Simpson. <laughs> I just, I I think it's like, no, excuse me, I contain multitudes. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, the, but yeah, the point I was getting at is that Lisa is the kid and she is, while she's a very smart kid, while she's a very advanced precocious kid she's still a kid and this is an episode that remembers that yeah but also we see it at the end of the episode as as well in the future where bart is the chief justice of the supreme court yes because of this he is still says the movie and yeah. he still laughs at the movie presumably now being one of the great legal minds of the gen, you know, of his generation. Yeah, I, I love that the other movie on the marquee is that it's a double feature with Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The in, in in the Simpsons universe, it was Itchy and Scratchy, the movie that got nominated for Best Picture and probably won. <laughs> but you know, you're talking about the the kind of uh, highbrow, lowbrow thing. What is yeah. it? Itchy and Scratchy, the novel written by Norman Mailer. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> that, that wrote God, this episode's dense with novel. just really good jokes. That, that's another thing I wanted to point out about this episode, is that it is, like, truly a joke-a-minute episode, but none of it gets in the way of the story somehow. There are even, like, you know, cutaways that would be emulated by other shows later. It's heavy with those. But at no point does it... At no point does it detract from the story. I think that's in part because they kept the story very simple so you would have room for all of these jokes and i think that's kind of that, that i think that's kind of the key to a great simpsons episode is that it's not necessarily a complicated plot it's just one where they've ex thoroughly explored the plot that they have there's two jokes here that still got a laugh out of me uh -huh. the first one was when they did this trailer for the itchy and scratchy movie saying uh featuring 50 percent new footage <laughs> yes a, cl a clear <laughs> reference to certain other animated movies of the era, like the Looney Tunes movie and like the Heathcliff movie, yeah. which the movie was just mostly recycled cartoons with some new wraparounds. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And because I was, you know, uh, as a kid, I would watch the uh, Bugs Bunny, Chuck Jones's Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie over and over again. Uh, you know, that that joke, even back in 1992, got a huge laugh out of me. Uh, although in part that movie was like a big part of my, you know, Looney Tunes discovery. I think I watched a whole lot of that and then found it on television. The other joke. Oh, the celebrity cameos, Michael Jackson, Dustin Hoffman. Oh, they're not using their real names, but you know, it's them. A nice in joke to the Simpsons itself, which yeah. had Michael Jackson and Dustin Hoffman get starring using fake names. Yeah. The, the in joke quality of that didn't occur to me until you know, my viewing earlier today, somehow. Also, the 
you know, it was like, oh, the predictive quality of the Simpsons. And it was like, well, you know, is it predictive quality or is it just, you know, how capitalism works? Good for you. Is <laughs> that it does open with the look Star at the cast of Star Trek still doing Star Trek in there. Yeah. Which, by the way, felt uh, like primordial critic to me. Uh, especially since I may have misremembered, misremembered this as being a critic cutaway. Yeah, it really does feel like a critic cutaway, doesn't it? it yeah, it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel as much at home in The Simpsons. I, I feel like it's telling that they kind of like put that at the very beginning of the episode so it couldn't interfere with the rest of the story because it's kind of the only really irrelevant, like truly irrelevant cutaway. It's really there to introduce the concept of a movie or a new movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, hello. Are you familiar with films? Here is a trailer for one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you understand what a film trailer is, right? <laughs> and I, but I mean, like sometimes, and like this happens at the end of the film. Sometimes they just like have a bit that got cut out of something else for time. And they might put it in another episode where there's room. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but the clip of the Itchy and Scratchy movie you see at the end is actually an Itchy and Scratchy bit that got cut out of another episode for time. The the railroad bit? Yeah. I liked the beginning with the teachers. The parent-teacher conference? Yeah, mm, the, yeah. Par the parent-teacher conference where Marge gets all the blame for Bart and Homer gets all the praise for Lisa. Because <laughs> you read TV Guide to her. <laughs> but in a way, it's another one of those highbrow, lowbrow things. Like, the joke is like, haha, he read TV Guide to her, and we know that's not why she's smart. But it's still reading to your child. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's still spending time with your child. It's still teaching your child what words mean. So I it's I I kind of liked the part where where that was presented as yeah it was both a joke but also kind of a positive because the other parents were kind of like well hey it worked for that kid maybe we'll go home and read the TV guide now yeah I mean like I realized that you know there are times when The Simpsons can have a you know cynical sense of humor but like. That joke always read to me as being, like, both the joke and the truth at the same time. Yeah, the important thing is you spend time with your kid. I would like to point out one of my favorite lines in, in the entirety of Simpsons, only because it has nothing to do with anything and it is shouted at the top of the character's lungs. We got beats! <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Sometimes, now, sometimes, folks, it's just for flavor. <laughs> um, there's a YouTube channel. I don't know if you guys heard. Uh, uh, I don't know if you, if YouTube have, have uh, seen it. That like their whole thing is just making music, uh, music loops out of Simpsons quotes. Oh, and they do one that's just one is just Lisa saying, "We got beats." <laughs> Speaking of, of musical bits in there, when Bart is swinging from the ceiling fan to the saber dance <laughs> by Grandpa's teeth, yeah. has always been one of my favorite bits from The Simpsons. 
Oh, it's very good. And it's like, it was kind of indicative. Like, the thing that struck me about that is what a funny damn drawing it is. Like, <laughs> yeah. that funny drawings don't happen in The Simpsons a whole lot these days. Just, you know, from decades of of kind of the the style becoming standardized. This is this is like still in the area of The Simpsons where The Simpsons was allowed to look funny. And this is an opportunity they took. And it was a valid one. Yeah, it's it's a nice gift too, where you know his <laughs> yes. lips are kind of all wibbly, and you know, Simpsons allowed to look slightly ugly still, you know, yeah. for the joke. We mentioned this with with Adam in the last in the last episode, but you know, Simpsons used to look a lot more cartoony than it does today, with a little bit more exaggeration, and it slowly and slowly got more realistic in their movements. Uh, as an animator yourself, Kyle, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's something that happens to a lot of shows that last for a long, long time, where just like rules will become compounded over rules, and at some point they're not for any audience and are often to the detriment of the audience. One show where you can see this happen and then unhappen is on SpongeBob. Like, SpongeBob started out with like a loose, fun style, and then get about 10 years in and like the style becomes more rigid and like it's it's got like a very specific style you can't break away from unless it is a special pose um but then fast forward to now uh um to you know a, a few seasons ago where uh, uh steve hillenberg brought uh mr lawrence and and uh, Vince Waller and uh, Mark Cicerelli back to run the show and the style got looser and more fun again and it became about you know funny loose drawings again and less about being you know exactly what's on the model sheet uh, I, I don't know why it it gets to be like that like uh, I, I like think to a certain degree it might have to do with you know the network being concerned about like what looks like the show and what doesn't to an absurd degree. Like I think for every show, there's probably a different behind the scenes story, but uh, it's, it's one of those things that they don't teach you because nobody expects to have a show that's going to last that long. Do we, do we want to say anything about the uh, chalkboard and couch gags before we wrap it up or go ahead? Uh, so the chalkboard gag for this one is I will not bury the new kid. <laughs> <laughs> Which, considering everything Bart is accused of in this episode, fits in well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if we're supposed to to take that. Um, there what? is what is the what is the one that Marge is is asked to write trying to remember i will I, try to raise a better child i will try to raise a better child <laughs> i d i do like when she says i i don't know how this helps bart and i know that in the context of the episode she's meaning i don't understand how me writing this helps bart but yeah. also that repetitive writing thing has never helped anyone do anything. Certainly not. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most ridiculous things ever. No, so, it's definitely more a power move than than uh, actually helping anyone. Yeah, like most punishments, 
and it, and it comes <laughs> up again when when uh, Homer, you know, sets down the you can't go see the itchy and scratchy movie. And Bart's like, oh, come on, wouldn't you just like to spank me instead and everything? And they're talking about that. Don't point that thing at me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is such a weird line. But, uh, but, you know, they've done like so much psychology since this episode was even done on like the psychology of punishments and children and stuff like that. And it turns out that, like, most punishments parents give to children make the parents feel good and they do nothing for children. Mm. But it just, it makes the parents feel like they've done something, you know. <laughs> and then and yeah. then for the children, it just teaches them how to avoid getting caught. Which is kind of exactly what the episode does. Yeah. Kinda, which yeah. means that the Simpsons predicted psychology, which is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Probably weirder than all the like Simpsons predicted, you know, various historical events. I wonder what uh, then parental reaction to the situation would be considered correct now. Well, the thing is, is that most of it has focused on like physical punishment, like spanking. Mm -hmm. Like, does spanking yeah. help children? And the thing is, is that no physical pain to a child just teaches them to avoid pain. So right. the idea is that explaining things to children is the best thing. Because if a child is too young to have it explained to them why they did wrong, then all they know is adults will hit me when they get angry. Right. Like, people who are bigger than me will hit me when they, when they get angry, which is the only lesson they will take from me. As, like, avoid angry big people. Um, <laughs> I mean, but, I've learned that lesson. Well, yeah, it, it, which is a lesson, <laughs> you know. Um, oh, but, an angry big person. I'm going the other way. Yeah, but if they're old enough that you can use your words then that is where you can actually do teaching and correcting actual behavior. It yeah, takes and, longer. It's annoying. It's work. But... The thing is, uh, I think that would even technically probably work with Bart because he, and this is something I wanted to point out, is particularly around this era, is depicted as being smart, but his smartness is never recognized. Like, he'll know, like, an obscure literary reference. He'll say something old-fashioned like, oh, you kid, in the example of this episode. Like, there is a depth to Bart. Certain of, some of that is certainly, you know, the writer's proclivities. But no less, he said it. Um, he's just reacted to vastly differently than his sister is. And I think that's, you know, made a dent. Well, you know, we, we had talked about, um, perhaps talking about the episode Bart gets an F. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and that is the whole point of that episode is that right. Bart actually has a form of intelligence. It just doesn't come out well in the academic system we have yeah it's such an interesting thing about bart that i wish that they would have explored more 
because like that that's kind of my favorite version of Bart is like yeah he's this funny ne'er do well but like there's there's a depth to him he knows stuff somehow yeah he's like, and, he, he seems to be a cultural sponge including you know smarter references and the thing is is that if Bart were ever allowed to grow up on the show you know I think that Bart probably has an okay future ahead of him if he's allowed to find his niche. Yeah, I would If agree. he's allowed to find some sort of creative work environment where he's given some leeway, he would he would probably thrive. Um he's just not, you know, he's probably an ADHD kid. He's probably oh, yeah. uh, you know, is like I feel a lot for Bart because he's probably just a kid who needs a little bit of help and has not gotten it. Yeah. Well, and you know, to go to like put our heads behind the curtain a little bit, you know, if we can just kind of, you know, try to guess what's going on here. I imagine that a lot of Bart's tendencies are, you know, from the, you know, ill behaved memories of the writer's childhoods, the writer's childhoods, all of whom grew up to be able to write for the Simpsons. Oh, most definitely. And there's probably some of the writers that were also Lisa. You know? Oh, sure. Um, which is, you know, like we said, we we just talked with somebody else about Moaning Lisa, which is just about childhood depression. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that had to come from somewhere. Um, I mean, we do see episodes of that take place in the future where Bart kind of is in a nowhere nowhere situation you know he's uh he's in a, a loveless marriage getting divorced uh making a, a weird bad band with Ralph selling their tapes on TV and all that <laughs> so it's like you're not you're probably not wrong that he just never got that niche he never found the what clicked for him but, but by the same token we also see episodes that show that lisa could go that way too yeah and lisa is the one that has all that potential and everything and there are so many former gifted kids that hit that burnout and they're like <laughs> oh you know you hit adulthood and you all of a sudden you're out of that academic system, which you excelled really well at, and now it's a new system, and you don't know how to excel at that particular system. We do kind of see it in a later episode with Lisa, where he, where she gets uh, bumped up a grade and she can't handle it. Like, she's too smart for second grade, but not smart enough for fourth grade. Right. But yeah, I mean, there there is something to, like, kind of, like being raised to think oh you're good at you're good at what you're good at uh young and then you know getting to adulthood and not having it be smooth sailing uh i couldn't possibly be speaking uh, for myself or anything but <laughs> it can <laughs> it can be kind of wild to be you know raised to believe that you're completely on the right path and then struggle in your career once you're an adult yeah uh, although i mean imagine being lisa and you peak at eight or you Bart and you peak <laughs> right. at ten. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, you know a, a thing maybe a lot of people in our generation are going through. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Millennial Breakdown, the podcast that talks about. Never mind. Uh, uh, right, so yeah, final thoughts on uh, itching scratch of the movie. Uh, so yeah, like this is. This is probably always going to be my favorite episode of The Simpsons. Not only is it a love letter to one of my favorite things, classic cartoons, but it is also just, you know, really peak Simpsons to me. So many amazing quotes came from it. Uh, None of the crazy stuff that they do is to the detriment of the story they're trying to tell, which, you know, has a very clear beginning, middle of an end, a buildup and a payoff. And it's just, it's just darn good TV, this show. You know, Kyle, I like stories. (laughs) <laughs> I like stories. So, uh, Kyle, do you have anything to plug? Oh, no, never. Okay. So, um, I have a website where all of my musics can be found, and that's tvskyle.bandcamp.com. I do a podcast with my buddy Luke, the title of which is self-explanatory, Kyle and Luke Talk About Tunes, and you can find that at kyleandluke.com. I made a show that nobody watched called Mighty Magiswords, and you can find it on Hulu and HBO Max, but not Disney+. Plus. Until Disney buys Warner and everything is Disney. <laughs> Please stop saying that out loud. They'll get ideas. <laughs> I want my Marvel vs. DC movie, and this is the only way it's going to happen. <laughs> you know what? I Roger Rabbit happened st- without anybody selling anything to anyone. <laughs> I just want to stop paying for three different subscriptions. I already pay for Hulu and Disney+, Plus, and they're owned by the same company, dang it. <laughs> Some countries, they are the same service, but not this one. <laughs> Uh, speaking of Luke, we'll be talking to Luke in just a few minutes. <laughs> Thank you, Kyle, for agreeing to join us on our on our Simpsons episode, and we hope. Oh, I didn't back. agree to any of this. I'm here against my will. <laughs> the strange men will leave your house as soon as we finish the Skype call. Uh, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand to see him like this. What? Dad looks happy. Something's deeply wrong. He's dark. That makes him who he is. Did you see how he ate his breakfast? He didn't shuffle his pancakes like a deck of cards. He doesn't air drum while driving or race the dog and butt scooting across the carpet. And he always won. He's not my homie anymore. We didn't notice any of that. A wife knows. And here we are with our next guest. It's the great Luke Ski. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. <laughs> of course, Luke Ski, our, our good friend and Dr. Demento mainstay, Fump founder, and a bunch of other stuff that he'll likely tell you about. <laughs> Love you, dude, though. <laughs> yes. Um, ha- I'm so happy to be included in your, your Simpsons uh uh, Simpsorama uh, or whatever. Um, yeah, this is great. So you've chosen for the episode that you wanted to discuss, season thirty-two, episode fifteen. Do Pizza Box dream of electric guitars? Why this episode, and why a recent episode and not a classic? Uh, two reasons. One, um. I have been watching The Simpsons since it premieres. I have never stopped watching The Simpsons when new episodes have aired. So to so many people 
treat the Simpsons the same way they treat Saturday Night Live. It's like, well, it was only good up until season, bleh, like usually they'll say season 10. It was good till season 10. Then everything after that just sucked. And, yeah, 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 yeah. and you know, I'm sitting here basically going like, no, <laughs> you're, you're, you're wrong. It has continued to be good. It has always been good and funny. Uh, y'all just got jaded. So it's like Weird Al once said, here's a generic review of any of my albums. And the review is, this album is great, but it's not as good as, parentheses, whatever album came out when I was 12, parentheses. So it's like, uh, so basically I'm just fed up with all these people who, who insist that The Simpsons at some point stopped being a good show and stopped being funny or whatever. So yeah, so, so that was reason number one. Reason number two is when I saw this episode... It's like, okay, somebody must have Men in Black neuralized me, and I forgot that I wrote and storyboarded this entire episode. This episode is so... Luke wrote this that I, it blew my mind, just, just from beginning to end, in every way. So, it's like, yeah, I, I really want to... I mean, I've already talked about this on... Uh, you know, my podcast with Kyle Carosa, Kyle and Luke talk about tunes. Uh, I asked him to watch it and we talked about it. So I rewatched it. Uh, I took a bunch of notes on it. And so that I can get into more detail on this episode that I absolutely friggin' love. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, ha it has the, the hip hop influence and uh, you are definitely a huge hip hop fan. You yeah. actually do rap, rap music and you know, you actually have, and you have the, uh, the Chuck E. Cheese showbiz pizza animatronic robots and, which is and, more of a this was which is more of a specific Kyle fandom, but it's the it's the aesthetic of Kyle B or Kyle, excuse me, Homer being incredibly excited to have a job at a pizza place where you know it's like an arcade and there's pizza and you know I've I've worked and at he a, can at a write parody songs yeah. to rap about food. Yeah, so. Should we, I mean, did you have more opening stuff or should we like just get into the episode? Uh, I guess, you know, we could talk about the one thing that everyone did complain about it is that the sliding time scale of the Simpsons. Oh, yeah, that which is a great place to start because it says that Homer is age 14. And uh, so, you know, without having like done the research on like, you know, looking up all these artists that are in the specific songs that are referenced. This seems to be about the year 1991. This is like the farthest forward in time, the sliding Simpsons scale. Like, remember the first time they did an episode where it's like, oh, we're going to look into the future of the Simpsons. So they went to the futuristic year of 2010. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it's like, it's, this is the first time because, okay, the Simpsons premiered and the whole thing was supposed to be like, oh, look at Bart. He's this wacky troublemaker, you know, uh, and then here's Homer and Marge. It's like, oh, they're baby boomers. And now, you know, 33 years later, it's like this: the, the whole thing has slid, has slid so that, you know, my age is I relate more to Homer than I do to Bart because of, you know, the passage of time. So here's here's them showing Homer being just like me when I was 14. And it's like, oh, my God, this is like such a, you know, uh mobius you know full circle you know infinity thing happening here that you know i have gone from being bart to being homer and the show has now acknowledged this and it's it's just mind-blowing we see homer age 14 he's in his room and um he you know you hear his dad wake him up and all over his room are posters and and albums and other stuff that all have to do with hip-hop 
it's like looking around his room, it's like all of the mixtapes that are, you know, personally handwritten labels in different ink colors, like sitting in a rack on top of his dresser. It's like, this is like literally photos of my room. So then he goes downstairs and, you know, him and, and uh, him and Abe have a have a little back and forth, like, you know, argument where Abe, of course, is, you know, is complaining that he doesn't like anything that's new and young and yada, yada, yada. And then Homer goes to his job, which is at uh, Razzle Dazzle's Entertainment Emporium or whatever it was called. So um, <laughs> and um, another funny thing about this episode is that we finally get a backstory on Gil Gunderson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Gil. <laughs> Who was an, a character invented in the episode where Marge becomes a, uh, uh, a realtor? A realtor, yeah. And it was a. Uh, it's like it's like uh, oh, I forgot that other character's name. That woman. It's like stay out of the West Side. <laughs> yeah. And he and like he has his cubicle wall, and he, they're like they're gonna take away people's cubicle walls, and he hugs his. It's like I brought mine from home. So yeah, uh, let's see. So yeah, we so he gets there, and it's his job to turn on the robot band, uh, which is uh, consists of. Wackity Yak, Foxy Lady, Jive Turkey, and Hippie Hippo, the uh, the members of the, uh, the 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 Razzle Dazzle Pizza Time Band or whatever. And uh, in the episode, uh, one of the pizza robots, uh, fr- you know, fries out, and everyone's generally bored with the show anyway. But then it starts freaking out the kids, and Gil's like, "Homer, you have to do something." So Homer, you know, pops in a CD. Apparently, he had a uh, the instrumental of ice ice baby just ready to go as a part of his whole djing thing and ran out there and gr- got behind yakety yak and grabbed him and started rapping about pizza uh and so instead of ice ice baby it became slice slice baby which not only did the people love it but it also encouraged them to buy premium toppings and uh so the other really important thing about this is that this ties into another important episode from simpsons history the emmy award-winning three gays of the condo where Homer, quote-unquote, goes gay and moves in with two other gay guys in a condo and is, you know, separated from uh, Marge for a time. So in order to get Marge to get through to him, she hires Weird Al Yankovic to come out and sing a song, and he's and Al and the band sing The Ballad of Homer and Marge. And uh, side note, um, <laughs> Bermuda set up his drums just so that he could sit there and clap. I just love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway... Homer sing so when when Homer sees it's Weird Al, uh, Homer goes, "Did you get the parody songs I sent you?" And Al goes, "Yes." It's like, "Which you did like better, living in La Pizza Loca or another one bites the crust?" And Al goes, "They're pretty much the same." Homer he goes, "Yeah, like you and Alan Sherman." So it was established in that episode that Homer, for whatever reason, writes song parodies about pizza. <laughs> So this episode firmly establishes Homer Simpson had a period of time in his life where writing song parodies about pizza was a very important passion project for him. Yeah, Simpsons jokes you never thought would come back, but somehow did. But yeah, I love the reveal that Homer's dream gets ruined by Gil's side business. Yeah, that the, the, the pizza <laughs> the pizza business is not doing so well for good old Gil. He is selling cocaine and hiding it in the animatronics. So yeah, the the rest of the episode is Homer just kind of fake being over it. You know, he has this memory that gets triggered by going back to the restaurant because they're going there for Ralph's birthday, and it just he gets this PTSD flashback. 
And he yeah. seems normal because, you know, he's kind of masking it. He's masking definitely. And Marge says, you know, Homer's not himself. Homer isn't acting like himself. He's not the the childlike wonder that he, of her Homer isn't there. And no one notices it but her and Mo. Yeah. <laughs> I love what the fact that it's do, Mo. Midge? <laughs> Midge. What do we do, Midge? Yeah. I just I just love the fact that she's making this impassioned speech and then Mo just walks in and continuing the speech so the it's so it would be so in character for Mo to have just been outside the door listening to whatever's going on with their family <laughs> you know just because he's lonely and he's waiting for a chance to walk in and be part of the conversation yeah. <laughs> but yeah they they find Gil who is now our Gil the down on his luck, luck Gil you know that we're used to Mm-hmm. And Gil still has that. I'm, I'm gonna get those robots back, and I'm gonna stuff them full of even more cocaine, better cocaine, <laughs> and get the the pizza place back, and uh, get my life back. Uh, but he turns over that uh, FBI uh auction slip that shows where. All of the all of the animatronics ended up, so they have to go get the hippo from Professor Frank, who is using it to mix chemicals. It's a centrifuge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, Jive Turkey ended up with Disco Stew, and I think that is the best reveal. Yeah. Backstory <laughs> for Disco Stew. Yeah. Because we finally see his parents. <laughs> yeah, I just, that was, you know, again, you know, not specifically comedy music related, but just the notion of messing around with genres of music. It's like Disco Stew, we discovered that his father was doo Steve, and then his mom is public domain Debbie. <laughs> it's like, oh, so <laughs> he's got to have a cousin named Punk Rock Jack or something. <laughs> New I, wave, new wave, uh, net or something. Yeah, <laughs> I am gonna say though that Debbie can go take a flying leap because disco rocks. <laughs> the fact that his that his legal name is Disco Stew, and I love the fact that I love it when it, it, it when a character gets invented based on one dumb joke. <laughs> <laughs> and then becomes canon for the rest of a series. So for those of you who don't remember, there was a, I believe a garage sale episode where, uh, where there was a, a denim jacket or something like that, which Homer had, uh, had, had the words disco STU on it. And he, <laughs> that he was selling, it's like, it was supposed to say disco stud, but I run out of space. And then they cut over to some guy who's with <laughs> Disco Stew, and he's like, hey, Disco Stew, this would be perfect for you. And he goes, Disco Stew does not advertise. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like that one dumb joke, and then he's there forever. <laughs> 30 seasons later, we still got Disco Stew. I feel so bad for Foxy Lady. <laughs> Well, Sideshow Mel. Ending up with Sideshow Mel because you get the whole thing of Mo. It's a Columbo reference! Yeah! In 2020! 
I love that so much. And Mo is the perfect character to do that. That was so great. Ugh. Just Mo going through doing his detective bit of, you know, like the WD-40 in the trash can. He does the one more thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and Mel trying to do, like, the squeaky door hinges thing and the, you know. And then after the reveal, Mel doing the slow clap. <laughs> yeah, the slow clap just broke me. Um, it feels like someone on the writing team really wanted to do a Moes Columbo episode but couldn't figure out past this one thing. And they said, you know what? I'm going to fit this into this episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Wacky, Wacky yak. yak, which was bought by Herman, uh, but Herman just sold it to uh, representatives from the company Bad Robot who work for J.J. Abrams and were taking it off to his new Springfield-based studio. Our guest star, J.J. <laughs> Abrams. Yes. So, so okay. So we went from <laughs> the hip-hop and parodies and stuff like that to science fiction director J.J. Abrams. And How now did I not write and storyboard this episode? <laughs> and now this episode is a commentary on reboots. <laughs> and and a commentary on the trolling of reboots. So, yeah. so yeah. So, basically, uh, yeah, it's like suddenly uh, uh, the Bart and Lisa are sneaking into J.J. Abrams' office. And just some of the – I don't want to list off every gag, uh, but I wrote down a whole bunch of them. I love the fact that there are two bins in there. One says – lost footage and the other says found footage <laughs> i just such a great joke Ugh. and of course we've got greg grunberg showing up because he has to be in everything jj abrams does greg grunberg as the security guard trying to stop them from stealing the uh in the, in the star trek uniform yeah in the in the knockoff copyright free star trek uniform jj abrams stops them and homer shows up they have the whole kind of coming together where Homer realizes what they're trying to do. And JJ's like, oh, my God, such childlike wonder. I have to reboot this now and give it nine movies. And also, let's we it's it's because they had to, of course, when JJ Abrams makes his on screen appearance for the first time, there is a lens flare. <laughs> yeah, the lens flare also killed me. I don't know why J.J. Abrams agreed to do this episode because he comes off douchey as hell. Well, probably intentional. I mean, a lot well, of celebrities do, you know, are not afraid to make fun of themselves in these shows. So for Abrams to play the douchey guy that everyone thinks he is. Yeah, it's like, it's like I would just assume that J.J. has a sense of humor about himself. Yeah, um, but you got to remember, like, two weeks ago, we were talking about how J.J. Abrams is exactly this guy. And now we're again, we're talking about how J.J. Abrams is exactly this guy. <laughs> so, I don't know. Um, this yeah. episode has become about... Uh, a commentary on both uh, reboots and also a commentary on the trolling of entertainment uh, in the world. And so it's like, again, you know, I wrote this. So so after the act break, uh, Homer goes to uh, Krusty Burger, runs into comic book guy, a.k.a. Jeff Albertson, and um, is uh, they start talking about it. And uh, comic book guy explains what trolling is to Homer. Uh, <laughs> Before so, we get into the trolling, can we talk about my favorite joke in the thing? Sure. 
where Homer goes in and just goes, can I have six feelings and a side of French feelings and a chocolate depression shake? <laughs> Eat your feelings, yeah. Uh, honestly, I've I, I feel that so much. I also recommend the hot apple cry. <laughs> yeah, the hot apple cry. Like I wanna, I wanna, like I don't need a crusty burger. I just need like. A, a depression burger. You don't want a happy meal. You want a sad meal. Yeah, I, I, I want like a deep, dark void of the soul meal. That's, that's, that's what I need. McDonald's, get on that. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, is that the whole back half of this episode has good points. However, I feel it is told in a bad way. The, the problem is, is that they have a point there. And they do, you know, there are a certain type of people, which is represented by a comic book guy, that they look at a property that is, you know, maybe a thing they watched. They bring up the, you ruined my childhood and stuff, you know. That's not Homer. What yeah, J.J. I mean, Abrams did was a very specific personal thing to one specific human being on a personal level that has nothing to do with, like, Homer watched a thing as a kid and has, like, a parasocial relationship with something he, like, you know, whatever. It's not like Homer watched Star Wars and now has a thing against J.J. Abrams. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, these four characters are just, like, something Gil owned. Like, we see something about J.J. Abrams saying, like, buy the underlying IP. But we don't know that this is a franchise. We don't know. I mean, we kind of get it because, like, we have the association with Chuck E. Cheese. But they don't set that up in the episode. As far as we know, this is a thing Gil owns and nobody else. These are the only four in the world as far as we know. And it seems like it's a really weird and specifically personal thing that J.J. Abrams does to Homer specifically that re-traumatizes him. And then they try to do this connection to like... Homer is exactly the same as some dude that's never met this guy that just is like, I don't like the way you art, which is not this situation. This guy specifically came over to Homer's house and took his things that he had just spent getting back to fix a childhood trauma that is unique and personal to him. I'm just saying. Homer's got beef. And then they try to do like, this is exactly the same as these randos over there who are just having very weird internet-y things that we don't like because we understand it from the artist's perspective, which is valid. Yeah, let's kind of go into the Troll Force 5 for one moment. Before we get into the, the rest of the plot here, because like like uh, Kiki said, you know, we have 
you know, shippers and furries and comic book fans that their entire thing is if this thing isn't exactly the way it is in my head, it's bad. And somehow that's the same as Homer, these specific animatronics that he reprogrammed himself is not the same as a worldwide franchise that's getting rebooted. I I also oh, kind of dislike the tropes they pick because it's kind of punching down to me. Mary Sue and the furry and all them. Yeah, the Mary Sue and the furry. It's like, ooh, let's I pick think... the the fans that get picked on the most. Like, <laughs> I think the furry is definitely punching down. Um, and and also like completely, like Mary Sue the shipper and Stan that comic book guy. Like, I think they all fall in the same category. But just being a furry doesn't make you a troll. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, you know, just being or, a furry or, or doesn't it, make you a troll. The furry is just like a guy who's a furry, and like, and also a quick side note: like American Dad has thoroughly done the furry jokes. You don't need to be picking on yeah. furries <laughs> anymore. And the furry dude has a point. He would know how fur moves, wouldn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know the the whole kind of uh, that part felt a little punching down to me not that there are not toxic people that fit each of those groups even the furries but just to kind of generically be like here are the villain team well it also may have just been sometimes episodes like run short and they just have to like invent things to stick at the end of episodes to make them long enough or whatever so this yeah. may have been one of those because <laughs> remember, remember the bit everybody loves Ned Flanders. It's like that made yeah. no sense. It was just something made to stick on the end of the episode. So that might have been the situation with this, and they just whipped up another uh, uh, bit. Um, I would have rather had the couch gag than that. And this episode doesn't have one. Yeah, it doesn't have a couch gag or a chalkboard gag, so we can't talk about either of those. Uh, yeah, Let's the, uh, talk about the final resolution of the thing where Homer finally gets over his trauma. Marge has brought Abe Simpson back to this uh, screening um, <laughs> uh, and and basically have Grandpa admit that uh, that he was the one that was totally terrible for not supporting Homer's dreams and, you know, uh, not being there for him. Uh, so it's like, you know, it wasn't <laughs> uh, I forgot exactly how they phrased it. But, yeah, basically saying, you know, making Homer realize that him going after you know, the, the, the funky, uh, or the agents of pizza, <laughs> I would yeah. love to figure if they figured out what the acronym P I Z Z A stood for, I want to know what it is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but like Homer being obsessed and going after the agents of pizza movie, you know, wasn't what he really needed. He needed, you know, his father to apologize for being a sucky dad. So, so yeah, so he gives up on being a troll and, you know, then he gets, uh, he gets to see the band, uh, again, and and they've been made into uh, frozen yogurt dispensers. <laughs> yeah, it's an it's another one of those modern uh, Simpsons episodes where they keep getting so close to the to the point, and then they just kind of like miss it just a little bit. Um. 
And you you kind of got close to the point too of like, yes, everything is done for money. That's the point. The like, of course it's done for money. That's the and here the point is like yeah it's being done for money that's what makes you mad that art has to have a capitalist motive you're so close to the point simpsons (laughs) you keep getting so close to the freaking point and then you just swerve off a little bit and you're like no you're not mad that like the guy's Stole your childhood dream to go make money off of it because he's like a greedy capitalist. You're mad at your dad for like being a crappy father. Yeah, let's just swerve and go to that. Like that. Like the trolls aren't mad because years and years of like copyright laws being messed up by Disney and like greedy corporate motives. You're mad. Because, like, trolls and ruining your child. Well, why do you think that happens? But also, also, you have, I mean, uh, neither of you mentioned it, but, uh, you know, you because Abe was such a terrible father to Homer, he found the escapism in those robots. And as JJ says, you know, maybe this new movie, this new version will allow the children of now to have their escapism from their terrible parents. And then Barney says, yeah, give us a chance to escape you. Yes, <laughs> which, which, which honestly does is part of the point. There, are, Most of these trolls are people who, let's be honest, didn't, probably did not have the best life growing up and found their escapism. And now their escapism is changing and they don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Any any final thoughts on this episode you want to share in the wrap up? Um again, just this this episode uh you know, um uh, like I said, we 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 start with the hip hop hip hop song parodies about pizza and we go into meta commentary about uh uh reboots and trolling of media. So, uh if if you can find an, a Simpsons episode that's more in the category of Luke obviously wrote and storyboarded this, I would like you to tell me what it is. Is there anything you want to plug? Oh, well, I should plug Kyle and Luke Talk About Tunes, the animation podcast uh, with myself and Kyle A. Carroza, the uh, uh, the comedy musician known as TV's Kyle, and also the creator of Cartoon Network's Mighty Magiswords. Um, And we have been doing this podcast since uh, 2013, and to the best of our... Uh, internet researching ability. We are the internet's uh, longest running general topic animation uh, podcast. So uh, Kyle and Luke talk about tunes. You can find us at kyleandluke.libsyn.com. Uh, we're also at kyleandluke.com, obviously, but uh, the Libsyn one kind of gets you to the point a lot quicker. Um, we're also, we also have a page on Facebook you can follow and uh, and a Twitter handle. So um, yeah, uh, we put out episodes every two weeks. Uh, just Later today, uh, we are going to be recording an episode with Victor Courtright, um, who is the uh, person behind uh, the show Thundercats Roar and uh, the new show on HBO Max, uh, uh, Aquaman King of Atlantis. And we're going to talk to him about cool stuff. He was also uh, the voice of um, uh, (laughs) – he was the voice of Flummox on Mighty Magiswords. So, yeah. All right, Luke, thanks for joining us. And uh, 
Yeah. Uh, this episode really showed that modern Simpsons can occasionally still get it. <laughs> but if by occasionally you mean all the time, yes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> all right. Thanks so uh, much, guys. Have a good day. Otto, you know I respect you. I mean, you always let us throw stuff at cars and try to tip the bus on sharp turns. <laughs> Dancing never goes over, does it? So what's in your head, little man? Well, I've been failing a lot of tests recently. Yeah. Uh-huh. And now they're talking about holding me back in the fourth grade if I don't shape up. That's it? Hey, relax, man. It could end up being the best thing that ever happened to you. I got held back in the fourth grade myself. Twice. And look at me, man. Now I drive the school bus. All right. Now it's our turn to talk about our favorite Simpsons episodes. We'll start with my particular favorite Simpsons episode. Season two, episode one. Bart gets an F. It took a while for me to decide. I had a whole list of episodes I wanted. But I wanted to talk about Bart gets an F because we kind of talk about it in the other segments. Bart's not dumb. But as this episode states, Bart has a bit of a fear fear of failure. He doesn't apply himself because if he applies himself, he's fear. He fears that he's going to fail. So he becomes the underachiever and proud of it. I actually remember that phrase on a shirt with Bart. That was one of the big controversies of the early Simpsons was this shirt with Bart saying underachiever and proud of it. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, um, there was a big controversy back when we were kids. And it was another one of the reasons why a lot of parents wouldn't let their kids watch The Simpsons. Bart is such a bad role model. And a lot of schools would ban Simpsons shirts, especially ones that had Bart on it. Some of the ones that had Bart on it had, like, swear words on it. And so they were banned in schools because he couldn't wear swear words on T-shirts. Yeah, back when damn was a swear word. <laughs> Or hell, or, you know. But one of them were shirts that had Bart on it, and they said Underachiever on them. Or or variations on that. And they were banned from school because they thought they would make kids not do their schoolwork. There was a quote from uh, one of the creators or producers or somebody. I think it was... um, James L. Brooks, that said something like, um, real life doesn't have many role models, so why do you expect them in television, or something like that? (laughs) When they asked him about about Bart Simpson. I kind of agree, and I kind of don't, on that sense. I, I honestly, I'm not even sure I agree with their assessment of Bart in this episode. When I was watching it back, I was like, you know, this school psychiatrist is probably full of crap. This episode, it hit me one way as a kid, and it hits me one way now as a teacher. 
And it hits me as an adult who has finally, you know, I finally in my late 30s was diagnosed with ADHD. Which, man, would that have come in helpful if they had figured that out when I was Bart's age? I wouldn't doubt there was an episode about this. There probably is. But I wouldn't doubt that for Bart either. Well, yeah. I mean, Bart is kind of the stereotypical boy presentation of ADHD. I was much more like Lisa when I was a kid. You know, if if you if you had met me at that age, you you would have you would have said I was Lisa Simpson. The smart Alec, the stuff like that. Well, you know, I was I was very smart. I was very passionate about causes. I mean, I still am, but you know, I was a you know, I got very good grades. I was constantly reading. I was very into music. Um, I was the good kid. I was depressed most of the time. I would, you know, but I was very, very, very Lisa Simpson. But I relate so much to Bart in this episode because as I got older, you know, when I was younger, I was very Lisa Simpson and my grades were very good and my grade. But as I got older and into high school, I started to struggle a little bit more with academics for reasons that had nothing to do with my intellect. You know, if you look at me on paper, you would you would or, you know, if you just sat down and, and talked to me, I think you would say, oh, what an what an intelligent woman, you know. but. If you look at some of my grades during certain points in my life, you would go like, where are these grades coming from? You know, I failed things. I had to go to summer school sometimes. Um, there were times when my GPA dipped bizarrely. And none of that had anything to do with my academic, you know, potential or my intellect. Um, I hate using that word. Um, but a lot of it came from the situation that I was in or, um, mental health issues at the time or physical health issues at the time. Um, it took me four years to get a two-year master's degree because of my physical health. Not because I was mentally incapable of doing it, but because I was physically struggling. I look at Bart in this episode and I see him sit down at the book and he starts to study the night before the test at one point and he falls asleep in the book. Like now, the second he starts reading, he falls asleep in the book. Now, there is an in story reason for this. One, he is. He delays the study as one, you know, oh, I'm going to play some video games and then I'll study. Oh, I'm going to eat dinner and then I'm going to study. Yeah. Oh, uh, dad wants to watch a movie with me. Okay, I'll watch the movie and then I'm going to go study. 
And by the time all of that happens, he's exhausted. He's already, again, he's already spent how many hours playing video games at the arcade? How long did they take to watch? How long did it take them to eat dinner? How long was that movie? So by the time he sits there and is ready to study, he's just checked out. There's no more energy left in him, and he just collapses. And part of it is on Bart. If he had just went straight home and not gone to the arcade and studied, he could have studied before dinner, before the movie. In a way, you know, it's in a way it is Bart's fault. I I I I agree with that. But you know, I see things like that, and I also look at that though, and I see him try to say things like, "Dad, I need to go study." And Homer pulls him aside, and I'm going, well, why isn't Homer listening to him? Yeah, in that moment, the most important thing for Homer is, let's watch a movie. Yeah, and why is it, you know, I'm I'm not blaming Lisa, of course, but, you know, Lisa sees what's going on, and Lisa says nothing. Of course, she's the younger sister, and I do not blame her, you know. But Marge also never seems to ask him about his homework and everything. You know, Lisa later on the snow day does remind him, you know, I saw you praying. And, you know, you need to make good on that that bargain there, you know? Yeah. But the rest of the family, you know, they know he's failing. They know he's going to. And we never once see see Marge and Homer step in and try to help they just kind of accept like okay he's gonna he's gonna repeat the fourth grade yeah and that's like the big thing that bothers Bart is like yeah he's been able to coast off off doing the bare minimum but now that's kind of over for him if he fails one more test he has to do the fourth grade all over again and that's just scares the life out of him you know that little fantasy about about old lady miss krabappel and him as a middle-aged man with his own kid in the fourth grade like that's his nightmare he doesn't he'll be in fourth grade forever it's a weird crossroads for bart he bargains with martin saying hey i will make you cool just try to get me smarter and it works, you know, Bart does study, but it backfires on him because now Martin has gone so cool that he is backtracked out of the deal. That so, you know, the Martin Prince you made a, a, a deal with no longer exists. Sorry, sucker. Of course, by the next episode, he's back to being a, a, a wimpy nerd that no one likes, but that's the nature of The Simpsons. Yeah. Um, and, and most animation of the time. Yeah. The interesting thing is that Bart does try, you know, again, we're kind of in the collectivist versus individualist on this. Yeah, Bart makes mistakes through this episode, especially in the beginning. We see him... Uh, blow off his schoolwork to go to the arcade. We see that at the beginning, especially, he doesn't do his book report, and he tries to coast by just uh, stating things that he can see by looking at the cover. 
he you know, it, so he fakes the illness to get out of the test. Yeah, he fakes the illness to get out of the test and stuff. So I mean, there is blame to put on Bart, of course, absolutely. But like I said, once other people realize that he is struggling, never once is he offered tutoring, say. Again, this is where his deal with with Martin comes in. Martin was tutoring him, and then Martin backed out of the deal when he became cool. I'm sorry, but a 10-year-old kid shouldn't have to go bargain with another 10-year-old to get tutoring help. But this is also part of the course for this era of Marge and Homer. You know, there's other episodes where they say maybe we should be more involved with our children, and they just in the same breath, kind of, nah, they're fine on their own. That's kind of how they were in these early episodes. Yeah, but also, they bring in this school psychiatrist, and he goes like, yeah, your son's got a fear of failure, so the best thing to do is to just fail him and make him do it all over again. You, You hold a kid back in a grade when you honestly think it's going to help them understand the material better, retain the material better, when you think that they have perhaps an intellectual disability that means that they're not keeping up with their traditional peer group, that's when you hold a kid back. In a way, that's kind of what they're doing. To play devil's advocate on that, because they, because Miss Krabappel goes through all of the his tests of the year, like, and as the as they go further and further into the test, and his scores get lower and lower and lower. So from their perspective, he isn't retaining the information because the further they go through the school year, the lower his test scores are getting. Yeah, the the thing is, is that. By the time I get a student, because I teach um, college, although I get some uh, high school students that come in for uh, dual enrollment, you know. So um, I do teach high school students, but they're always kind of coming in to get early college credit. So I don't really deal with kids, you know, who are going to not advance a grade, you know. So um, if they fail a class I'm teaching, they might have to repeat the class, but it's not going to slow their progression in the same way. The thing about what is happening to Bart in this is that he has never really had any consequences for what has been happening. Like, he keeps failing, yeah. But it hasn't really been too much of a consequence until the possibility that he's going to be held back. So that's the thing that scares him. But the other end of that is he also hasn't been receiving any support to figure out why he keeps failing. So he goes out and he tries to find that support on his own with Martin. He's on a good role with Martin as as the tutor, as you know. Martin's even saying, "Hey, you're doing really good. We might have to, you know, 
but it's the it's that point where Martin becomes cool and he gets ditches him. Yeah, he gets abandoned by the one kind of support that he has. We see that Bart is really thriving as long as he has a little support, as long as he has somebody to believe in him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that at a couple other points in the series. Whenever Lisa kind of helps him or he has some other kind of support to help him, he really does excel in various things throughout the series. Um, but when he's kind of just left on his own, he kind of flounders because he he doesn't really know how to structure himself. But the thing is, we get to the final bit where he's prayed for the snow day. The miracle arrives. He spends the entire snow day studying and studying and studying. And he goes in and he takes the test and he gets that 59. He fails the test by one point, one question. In that moment, it breaks him. And this is one of the few moments in the entire series where we see Bart show genuine emotion. The way that scene is animated, yes, for early Simpsons, but it's one of the, probably one of the more better animated sequences in the series. Where you see his eyes water up and he's just completely broken. Like, I did my best, and I still failed. This is the best I can do, and I'm not good enough. Tell that to anybody, and it'll break them. I mean, you and I have gone through it. I think everyone's gone through that moment where no matter how hard you try, there's no way to win. And in Bart's mind... That's where he is. At 10 years old, no matter how hard he tries at something, he is going to fail. And that emotion just seeps out of him. Like, this is the best I can do, and I'm not good enough. And it's just this rare moment in the series of Bart being on it. Not, in his own mind, honestly, I guess. This Bart showing this emotion just being real. I guess that's what I want to say. He's, you know, the cool kid persona drops. And he just doesn't know what to do at that point. Yeah, this is one of the most heartbreaking moments in all of Simpsons history. And as a teacher yourself, you've, you know, imagine yourself in Miss Krabappel's shoes. Where you have the troubled kid who actually tries, and it's just not enough. Well, I'm going to say that this episode of The Simpsons, this this is the weird thing. This episode of The Simpsons, probably more than anything else, probably informs me as a teacher more than anything in the world. Every semester that I have gone in front of a classroom, I have said one thing to my class, which has been, I can't guarantee a passing grade to anyone, but everyone who has ever passed my class has done two things. They've turned in their assignments on time and they've honestly tried. Because I think that that's the 
the most fair way to run a class? Are you honestly trying your best? Because I don't want to have a a person in my class like Bart. He really did try his best. He studied, he tried his best, and he still failed. You know, he shows that he knows something that wasn't even tested on, that which one, is another thing. Yeah, that one little factoid of the battle that Washington lost that wasn't even on the test. And Krabop, you see her, you know, Krabappel's eyes are like, what did you say? And she has to look it up to even see if he's correct. Because she doesn't even know. And then she's shocked that he is right. Because she doesn't know. She only knows the stuff that's on the test, which is unfortunately true of a, a lot of teachers sometimes. Standardized tests are in the U.S., yeah. You're not really learning everything. You're learning what's on the test. But it shows, as Mr. Kabapal says, that Bart can learn. He can not only remember things that remember things from the from the from the textbook, but can apply it to situations. Yeah, he can make connections. He understands history in context, which is way more important than just remembering stuff by rote to repeat on a test. I mean, this is this is you you have picked such a great episode here. It's it's one of my personal favorites as well. This episode keeps getting uh, keeps getting put on best episode lists. No matter who you know who makes the list, it keeps yeah. getting put on not only it, best episodes of Simpsons but best episodes of television. Yeah, because this just I think it's just something that everyone can go through sometimes. You have these moments where you try and you fail. But in this instance, it wasn't because he was dumb. It was because of what was on the test. And he showed that he knows his stuff. He knows the book. He just happened to know things that weren't on the test. Yeah. And that was enough. You know, Mr. Bopple, it was, as Mr. Bopple said, it's only fair. You know this. You memorize this. And even though it wasn't on the test, I'm going to count it because you tried. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, that moment, I passed, I passed, I kissed the teacher. Yeah, that was a, a really good ending moment. And, you know, we were talking at the, the top of the episode about how, you know, I I wasn't allowed to watch it because Bart is such a horrible, you know, thing. And, you know, it it's unchristian and it's they. This is uh, listed now in several books about how the Simpsons portrays religion correctly and how it teaches Christian values and stuff. This episode is pointed to as the Christians teaching morality correctly. He even says part of his part of this grade belongs to God because really he does. He prayed to God for the snowstorm that allowed him to study that made him that got him that grade. Yeah. Before we move on, because we've been doing it for the other episodes, let's talk about the chalkboard gag and the couch gag. Chalkboard gag, Bart writes, I will not encourage others to fly. I'm going to guess this is 
like the, you know, tie a towel around your neck and pretend to be Superman kind of flying rather than, you know, call United and fly commercial. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Knowing Bard is probably what it was. (laughs) Yeah. It's the only thing I could, I can, uh, figure would make him write on the the chalkboard my only my only worry is what what who was the student that that took the bait and fell yeah because that sounds like a ralph thing unfortunately hilariously i had one of my own students come into class one one day uh and said i'm i'm sorry i wasn't in class the other day my daughter jumped off the roof and broke her arm. And I said, oh, no. And then I said, wait, did she tie a towel around her neck and pretend to be Supergirl? And she said, yeah, she's been watching that CW show. She did that. And I and, and she said, wait, how did you know she tied a towel around her neck? And I said, the classics never get old, sweetie. <laughs> So apparently kids are still doing that to this day, which I'm kind of both sad about and proud about. No kids. But that's a different movie for a different day. Yeah. But yeah, Ugh. the uh the the couch gag for this one is uh the uh the couch falling through the floor and then you hear Homer do the don't that is a classic couch gag. That's you know that's that for even though this is the beginning of the second season, that does feel like a first season couch gag. Like, it's so simple versus the more out there couch gags of later seasons. Yeah, it's sometimes it's the the very very simple ones that that get you. Yeah. They have the more elaborate ones, you know, sometimes, but. Sometimes it's those really quick ones that that really have the the punch to them. True or false? You can get mono from riding the monorail. Mm, false. No, wait. Maybe it's true. No, you were right. It's false. Wow, you really are going to be a monorail conductor. That's right, boy. You know, I used to think you were stuck in an emasculating go-nowhere job. <laughs> Kids. But now... I want to follow in your footsteps. Do you want to change your name to Homer Jr.? The kids can call you Hoju. I'll get back to you. Kiki, your episode, you chose Season 4, Episode 12, Marge versus the Monorail. 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 (laughs) Famous because this was written by a not-yet-famous Conan O'Brien. Yeah, and uh, a lot of the people who worked on the the Simpsons in the early years consider this the best episode of the Simpsons ever. Not only does this have you know some pretty good a pretty good story and some great guest stars, but one of the early attempts at continuity because we get Lurleen in here that we hadn't seen since the last season. Yeah, uh, I I had forgotten she was in this actually until I was doing the, so the rewatch. Yeah, of course, uh, Lurleen, the country singer that Homer managed, originally voiced by Beverly De- D'Angelo, pretty much because she played Patsy Cline in the biopic. Uh, quick note, again, we're, we're, 
who knows when we're going to do that episode. Uh, Lurleen is also based on uh, a friend of Matt Groening's. Uh, Matt Groening was in a band with a woman named Kathy Cameron Goldmark. And if that name is familiar to you, it is because she was the mother of Tony Goldmark. So, yeah, Tony Goldmark's, uh, Matt Groening was a family friend of Tony Goldmark's family. Well, there you go. Yeah, he's, uh, uh, if you ever listen to Tony's podcast, go back to his episode on The Simpsons. He goes through the whole thing and how his mom and new Matt Groening, and apparently they were in a band together, and Lurleen is loosely based off that. But mostly based off Loretta Lynn because of the name uh, Lurleen Lumpkin. Because the uh, same initials. Yeah. But yeah, uh, not voiced by Beverly D'Angelo in this episode because one, they probably couldn't get her for this episode, and two, they wanted to show that she had fallen on hard times since since uh, Homer dumped her. And in, uh, she would come back in later episodes kind of showing that she never got over Homer. Because we see uh, later episodes uh, a string of ex-husbands that all look like Homer. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that, I think. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that, that was it. And, of course, we get references to another Fox show, Beverly Hills 90210, with our uh, not Luke Perry character. Yeah, uh, that was... Uh, I, had, I had forgotten the, uh, the, the celebrity stuff in here, except for, of course, uh, Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, Leonard Nimoy cameos as himself. Leonard they, Nimoy acting like a Star Trek fan in this movie, in this in, in this episode. Yeah, um, I I really always liked this because of the the Leonard Nimoy stuff when I was a kid. You know, this episode was always kind of one of my favorites because it's like, oh, Leonard Nimoy. You know, it just kind of feels really chill and weird. As an adult, but weird in the best way, you know? I, I don't know. It just, it, it feels so zen, the way they use him. In later episodes, most of the celebrities play themselves. And this is one of the earliest instances of a celebrity playing himself as opposed to another character. I like the, the way that they um, bring, bring it in. Because you think that he's going to just be a cameo, and then he works into the plot, which you don't expect on your first watch of this. Yeah. He saves Krusty the Clown from jumping off the monitor. No, the world deserves laughter. Oh, yeah. The world needs laughter. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that bit. I love that Conan O'Brien was just driving around... Los Angeles, and he saw a billboard that just had the word monorail on it, and there was no other context. And that's where this episode came from. You would think that, considering it was it was L.A., that it would have to, that it would have been something involving Disneyland because they have the monorail. Maybe. But I don't 
think to this day anybody ever knew what that billboard was. <laughs> but that's apparently where this episode comes from. He was just driving around L.A., going somewhere, and he saw a billboard, and it just said monorail. And he went, what? <laughs> and apparently it baffled him so much that it just stuck in his brain, and somehow that led to this episode. They ha had such a bizarre grouping of cultural references yeah the episode begins with a reference to the flintstones yeah they do the entire flintstones opening and then for a, no reason and then it just jumps to a reference to beverly hills cop yeah with the axel f again why we don't know it and just a, is and then a reference to silence of the lambs again why we don't know it's just this is just such a bizarre bounce around Conan O'Brien's brain, I guess. And the the setup is that Mr. Burns gets caught dumping toxic waste illegally. So they fine him $3 million for doing that. And he's like, oh yeah, that's cool. Just take it out of my wallet. Which I think is such a great bit on how fining rich people for doing bad things is no real punishment at all because it's yeah. just you must be this rich to do the bad thing and that's only gotten worse <laughs> since yeah it's just and so then they're like well we have three million dollars what are we going to do with it and of course lisa wants the schools to have extra funding which i love I like. that i love that vr i, I for a while, that that thing is that VR thing is always in my brain every once in a while. Defile who I defile, eat who I eat. Yeah, the the I I I like that Lisa's VR history fantasy is so bloody. <laughs> that history was bloody. Well, yeah, but I like that her specific. It's not like go watch, you know. Go watch some great inventor invent something or whatever. It's like, no, watch Genghis Khan lay waste to humanity. Like, okay. Bart, of course, wants to use it for robotic ants to eat the school. One of the many, many fantasies he has of him destroying the school. Yeah. <laughs> um, Though the, the best one is him with the wrecking ball to the to the schools off for summer yeah but uh but yeah but uh when they all get together to uh, talk as a town about how to spend the three million dollars marge wants to fix main street which we see in the flashback has been mostly destroyed by homer <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know she wants to use it for a sound infrastructure plan, which good for Marge. It's the most practical of all of the ideas for the for the money. I like that Mayor Quimby tries to say that they have two million dollars, and then Lisa's <laughs> like, "Don't you mean three million? And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I I misspoke. I I wasn't trying to scam a million dollars off the top, little girl. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, I, I love that Abe Simpson tries to talk the town out of it, but he says it in such a backwards way that everybody assumes he's. <laughs> but Abe Abe's line in that is one I quote all the time, which is like, "I ain't for it, I am, I'm against it." <laughs> <laughs> I scream that all the time. But they're they're all on board with Marge's plan, and then we get the introduction of Lyle Landley. Played amazingly by the amazing Phil Hartman. Oh, Phil Hartman. I love Phil Hartman so much. Phil Hartman, who has guest starred on so many of those early Simpsons episodes, he's might as well have been a regular cast member. Yeah, Phil Hartman was everything on The Simpsons for a while. Yeah, those those early years with The Simpsons, man. But yeah, this this is one of his triumphs. Uh, even though this character really only appears in this episode, his entrance when he comes in and is like, You know, a town with money is a little like the mule with a spinning wheel. No one knows how he got it, and danged if he knows how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> mule. And I love that that it's it's such that folksy, you know, quote, and everybody's like, ha, 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 you know. And then he goes into... The monorail song. The, well, well, at first he does that cheap heat, you know, of like, well, I would tell you, but it's more of a Shelbyville idea. This whole thing is, you want to talk about bizarre references, this is a reference to the Music Man! Yeah, he comes in and he does the Music Man con, which is... So, again, another bizarre cultural reference. Yeah. Uh, which is brilliantly written, and apparently the lyrics were Conan O'Brien. The uh, music was by Al Jean, I think, and just uh. So wonderful. It's a short song, but it's got some really uh some really interesting rhymes and, and stuff, anything. Who are you sent here by the devil? No good man, I'm on the level. Y- yeah, no, yeah. The ring came off my pudding can. Take my pen knife, my good man. You know, <laughs> I love that one because it has nothing to do with anything else, but it just Chief Wiggum's off in his own little world. Um and uh but I love Bart's thing about, sorry, Mom, the mob is spoken. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Even today, against all common sense, the mob rules. Yeah, and so the whole town, you know, just goes goes off on the monorail idea. And then we have, you know, Homer decides that he doesn't want to be... Uh, you know, he doesn't want his job at the nuclear plant anymore. Now his dream is to become a monorail conductor. Which plays into another running a running gag in the, of these early years of The Simpsons. Marge, you're standing in the way of my boyhood dream of managing a beautiful country singer. Your boyhood dream was to eat the world's biggest hoagie. And you did it at the county fair last year, remember? Marge, I want to be a monorail conductor. Homer, no. It's my lifelong dream. Your lifelong dream was to run out on the field during a baseball game, and you did it last year, remember? 
I got a job at Burns' Casino. As you know, it's been my lifelong dream to become a blackjack dealer. Your lifelong dream was to be a contestant on the gong show, and you did it in 1977, remember? We got more gongs than the breakdancing robot that caught on fire. Yeah, and and so he he gets into the monorail academy, which, uh, of course, we see how much of a absolute scam artist Lyle Landley is, um, where he he ends the course with mono means one and rail means rail, and that's the end of the course. You know, it's like. And uh, that guy over there, he's going to run the monorail. Okay. <laughs> I like that Lyle Landley is, uh, his entire plan is to go to Tahiti, which I hear is a magical place. You should go sometime. Where? Tahiti. It's a magical place. Yeah, Agent Ward told me they sent you to Tahiti. It's a magical place. You mentioned that. It seems Fury has a soft spot for his favorites. Not everyone gets sent to Tahiti. It's a magical place. Marge decides that she needs to go check out this monorail and goes to North Haverbrook, which is one of the places he says he put on the map with a monorail. Another running gag. From now on, the baby sleeps in the crib. Iron helps us play. (laughs) Hello, Joe. From now on, the baby sleeps in the crib. Iron helps us play. (laughs) Hello, Joe. I've sold monorails to Brockway, Ogdenville, and North Haverbrook. Is there a chance the track could bend? I call the big one Bitey. I've sold monorails to Brockway, Ogdenville, and North Haverbrook. Is there a chance the track could bend? I call the big one Bitey. Mom, I need more OJ. Flintstone's chewable morphine. Oh, Mr. Flobo. Mom, I need more OJ. Flintstone's chewable morphine. Oh, Mr. Flobo. OJ. Morphine. Flobo. OJ. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. And and they do that with the little floating heads going around Marge in yeah. this one, yeah. But she goes to North Haverbrook and it's a ghost town, and people are like, there never was no monorail. And then she shuts it and it's the monorail cafe, you know. <laughs> um, but she finds the uh the scientist Sebastian Cobb. And he's like, you know, the monorail, you know, first time we ran it, it crashed and, you know, everything and the whole, we had put all our money in it. Now we're ghost town. And so they go back to, to stop the monorail and everybody is on board the monorail. Of course, everything breaks. The whole thing is a, a scam. The like, can we cut the power? And then they go, no, it's solar powered. Will people ever learn? um and then we get the miracle of the the solar eclipse the dance of the universe as leonard nimoy says (laughs) can i change my seat (laughs) (laughs) and and all but of course the solar eclipse doesn't uh last very long and as soon as the solar power is back it speeds off again but i like that landley does get his comeuppance because the flight to Tahiti, which is a magical place, makes a stop in North Haverbrook. And I like immediately, they're like, there he is! It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how the locals knew his, his plane would be stopping there. 
<laughs> but uh, they they do finally uh, get their revenge on him, which I like. So yeah, they 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 figure out that they need to anchor it to stop it, and ah, uh, 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 I do love that the anchor actually ends up causing more damage to Main Street than there already was. Yeah. <laughs> but I I like that he, that Homer's first thing when she says you need an anchor is he looks at Bart and Bart turns into an anchor and then as the anchor he goes thank harder Homer. <laughs> <laughs> but good I good thing there was a cowboy on the monorail. <laughs> Yeah, I love the cowboy is just there practicing his lasso tricks. But I like that eventually the the M lands inside the lard lad donut. Yeah. <laughs> and Homer's like, ah, donuts. Is there nothing they can't do? Mm, donut. <laughs> but the funnier thing to me was I had forgotten all about that bit. And I was actually eating a donut while watching this episode. I was like having my breakfast and preparing for the episode. Um, so I was watching. I was like in the middle of a bite. And Homer's like, mm, donuts. So I was like, yes, donuts. Uh, but I love that that Leonard Nimoy gets off the 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 monorail and he's like ah my work here is done and Barney's like you didn't do anything he's like didn't I and then just transports away <laughs> and then we see that uh, this is not the first or only time that Springfield has wasted money on something that is a failure the, the skyscraper full of the popsicles the world's largest microscope the escalator to nowhere yeah, the, the magnifying glass that says the popsicle stick scraper, the popsicle stick skyscraper on fire. The escalator to nowhere I love because that is such a well-timed bit because you have, like, the people going up it and then falling off. And I love the way it's timed because it's, like, two people that are, like, right after each other. So you get the little sound effect of, like, ah! Ah, and then it just waits as you like watch the third person in the line just slowly go up and then it's like ah I love that they make you wait for that third one in the series it's like we're gonna do the rule of three but you're gonna wait for <laughs> this episode is it's a bizarre episode but it's also so well put together because there's no B-plot to it. But at the same time, it is such a bizarre confluence of bouncing around to different unrelated uh, cultural references that don't really make sense, but work together so well. And it's sort of a, a start of Simpsons continuity in some ways. It's a lot of Simpsons running gags. It's got the musical number. 
you know, it's one of Phil Hartman's better performances in The Simpsons. It gives all of the family members a short chance to shine. The smartest one being Lisa is like, why does a small town like Springfield need a high a high speed rail system? And then I love how Lyle Landley just kind of slinks in there and he's like, what a brilliant question from a small little girl. You know, I could give you the answer, but we'd be the only one who would understand it. And that includes your teacher. And somehow that works. Like he flatters Lisa so well. He understands Lisa so well. Con that, man's got a con man, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a good con. I I don't know. It's so great. Uh, we got to mention the director of this episode, too. All right. Um, it was directed by Rich Moore, who we have talked about his work before on the show. <laughs> because he has directed Wreck-It Ralph and Zootopia. For which he won a freaking Oscar. Uh, he directed so many episodes of The Simpsons, uh, including some of the best ones and um, some of the better episodes of Futurama, uh, episodes of The Critic, as well. So, I mean, this is one of the best directors in all of animation um, and a long career with uh, both. Simpsons and Disney. It really, really impressive, you know, that this was put together by some of the best in the business. Yeah, and like you said, one of the best Simpsons episodes ever. You wanna, you wanna talk about uh, Chuck Moore gag and, and yeah. couch gag here? Yeah, Chuck Moore gag. I will not eat things for money. What I don't know why. Fuck? That's a perfectly fine profession. I mean, there are people whose whole entire thing that they will eat strange things for money. They even make TV shows about it. Yeah, that's like a whole section of YouTube, I think. Yep. And our couch gag, the Simpsons and the couch and the entire rest of the town <laughs> sits right in front of them. Yeah. Darn you, blocking the TV. Yeah, right. Yeah. So. Again, another classic. Sometimes the simplistic couch gags are the ones you remember. And I think this was a nice selection of episodes, not only from our guests and from us. Uh, so I don't think we really, really need to ask the question. But now that we've seen episodes from essentially every era of The Simpsons, you know, the we have... You know, essentially four episodes from di from the classic era and the one episode of the modern era. Does The Simpsons have the magic? Yeah, I mean, you can you can talk about whether or not it's it's waned a bit, but I think there's there's still magic there. I think it's a different quality of magic, maybe these mm. days. But it's still enough to keep me watching. I mean, it's still entertaining. I would say that I would say definitely The Simpsons still has the magic. The classic episodes are still good. And, you know, 
as I said before, the Simpsons can still pull out a banger in the modern era. All right, so that's all we can say on the Simpsons. Next week, Kiki, it's that time of year. Again, as this episode is being released, it's Thanksgiving. It's getting colder. Those beautiful lights are coming out everywhere. And, of course, everyone is looking forward to that arrival from that man dressed in red. I'm, of course, talking about Spider-Man. Because there's a movie coming out in a few weeks. (laughs) Yay! So, in honor of the new Spider-Man film, we are taking a look at all three live-action Spider-Men. Starting next week with the one that kind of started it all in terms of theatrical Spider-Man movies, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Taking a look with, uh, uh, at Tobey Maguire's first outing as the wall crawler. So that's going to be very interesting to go back to these, to these older movies in preparation for the new film. So come back next week for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. And we will talk to you all then. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.